Future trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities. Hello and welcome to From the Furrow, brought to you by Everag Insights. Each week, we talk with subject matter experts on news and topics affecting the grain markets. I'm your host, Britt O'Connell. Let's get started with a review of the markets. Today is Tuesday, May 16th. July corn is trading down 8.5 at 584 even, and July soybeans are trading down 21 and 3 quarters at 1379 and a quarter. Turning to our guests this week, it's our privilege to have Shelby Myers. Shelby is the Grain Market Intelligence Director with Everag. Thanks for joining us today, Shelby. Thanks for having me. Excited to be back. Shelby, on Friday, the USDA gave us the first look at the 2023-2024 grains balance sheet. We also got a look at, of course, the old crop balance sheet in that as well. Can you give us any of your key takeaways from either old crop or new crop? Sure. I'm going to start with old crop and just say, I think, Those are results that we somewhat expected. USDA lowered corn exports by 75 million bushels and the subsequent increase in ending stocks from that uh, certainly speaks to the pace that we've been monitoring for corn exports and the lackluster of global demand that we've seen out of corn. And we'll get to a lot of those reasons here in our conversation today about what we see in the global corn market. But um, certainly not a surprise, but also not very helpful on that demand side for corn. Uh, and we continue to see our ending stocks increase. The soybean balance sheet was right in line with where I think expectations had. You know, there are some other analysts calling for an expectation of soybean exports to also have a cut here in the next couple of reports. You know, I think we'll continue to monitor that situation as we get export reports every week. But for right now, USDA left soybean exports alone. The only adjustment was an increase to imports as we did bring in about 10 million bushels of Brazilian soybeans uh, off the global market and into some of our demand uses here domestically. The real market moving news of the day from Friday was the new crop balance sheet being revealed. I kind of summed it up in two different ways. I felt like corn was bearish with an abundant supply and what I would consider a more than expected optimistic demand side. Soybeans, on the other hand, I felt like were bearish with an abundant supply and not as optimistic of a demand. And some of the things that we've been talking about with everybody internally is, you know, to look at the soybean balance sheet that they're proposing for the 23-24 crop, it almost mirrors that 2021 year that we have, maybe 50 million bushels off, but the price difference is about a dollar twenty lower for this upcoming crop year, which I find very fascinating that we're not as optimistic in some of our demand categories like soybean exports coming into this year. Uh, but we have a nearly matching balance sheet to when we had thirteen and higher dollar beans in twenty twenty one. Let's circle back around to corn exports. It feels like a topic that we've talked about on a number of occasions, but I really want to talk about it in light of 2023-2024, because the USDA put out a rather lofty 2023-2024 corn export number. What are your thoughts 
on that specifically? That corn export estimate is something that I plan to dig into quite a bit over the next couple of months. And for anyone listening, please sign up for our market moment that we put out every week because I'm going to dive into it this week in an article for USDA to put corn exports well above 2 billion bushels at 2.1 billion bushels for the upcoming year seems very lofty, as he said. Uh, we don't tend to hit over 2 billion bushels unless we really go high and above 2 billion bushels. So think years like 2020 and 2021 when we were on the backs of uh, major corn purchases by China, particularly to fulfill that phase one trade agreement. Then you also had years like 2016, 2017, and 2018 when we were just a little bit above 2 billion bushels. Uh, I speak on that in 2018. 2014 was probably our highest year in the most recent decade where we had 2.4 billion bushels just as normal market conditions. The outlook for the 2023 year just in the global trade corn dynamics has to be significantly different than what it is today and what we've experienced with this old crop Old crop, we're not even going to hit 1.8 billion bushels, and we're somehow going to find another 300 million bushels to leave the country is very fascinating. You've got factors kind of going against that, like Brazil being a record corn producer, and not only a record corn producer, but the top global corn exporter with corn leaving the country faster than they can hold it. And I want to talk about that as well. But then you also have Countries that are top importers from the U.S. like Mexico making trade demands on what kind of corn they want to import that could potentially be a barrier to our trade with them. And so where our corn goes next leaves a big question, especially for the 2023-24 year. I think in the next couple of days, we might have a little bit more indication of what that could look like if the Black Sea Grain Initiative does dissolve. Uh, and I, I'm jumping ahead of of our conversation, but if that does dissolve, you know, maybe that that's where our corn exports tend to backfill, and, and we could see that come up. I just find it to be a very lofty goal, as you said, for USDA to put corn exports at over two billion bushels for this new crop year. I want to circle back around on that Black Sea Grain Initiative for just a moment. That's certainly something that has caught the attention of everyone this week as it is due for renewal and conversations, talks have stalled about renewing that. What's the latest on that situation and what kind of ripple effect could that cause? The Black Sea Grain Initiative has had a tumultuous couple of months. You know, we were really trying to figure out, was it extended back in March for 60 days or 120 days? And no one would really ever say, well, we're at the 60 day mark this week. And it's clear that in order for it to continue on, Russia has some large demands that they would like met in order to stay in the agreement. And the UN is desperately trying to find ways to keep this initiative going, primarily from a humanitarian crisis perspective. There are a lot of countries that rely on the exports out of the Black Sea ports in order to feed their nations. And we could be facing a global food crisis if this is not renewed. So the UN has a huge stake in trying to get these parties to agree on something 
However, the situation kind of remains that Russia is waiting on its demands to be met from Western sanctions. And so that requires countries like the United States and the EU and other countries that have put sanctions on Russia for their actions of invading Ukraine to drop some of those so that they have leverage to re-enter into this grain deal. Right now, it's kind of the balls in everybody's court and everybody's trying to figure out how do we continue forward. There are no plans for talks to continue this week, uh, which I think brings a lot more anxiety and uncertainty to the future of that deal is that if it expires on Thursday, May 18th, and uh, here we sit Tuesday, May 16th with no talks going forward, we could be watching that deal expire over the next couple of days. And I think market movement is certainly going to speak to that too. That As we get closer and closer to that, if there's no grain deal announced, we suddenly deal with the ramifications. Well, what are those ramifications? As you asked explicitly, it's we are cutting off a grain supply port. Not entirely. I, I think it's a misconception that that all of those grain producing areas just immediately are removed from the market. That's not technically correct. What it means is that the lower production areas of Russia and Ukraine in particular that are not being able to get into the field due to all the circumstances that they have. So their production's lowered already. What grain they have to move out of the country is suddenly subjected to less certain circumstances. So ships don't have the necessary insurances that they need to safely make passage through there. You have situations where insurance industries just don't feel comfortable insuring the high cost of moving vessels through through there. And so we revert back to a situation that we had pre-July of 2022, where grain is moving through other avenues. Uh, rail was the, was the second most used. And so having to move grain through rail all through the country of Ukraine to bordering countries, offload it and reload it to other countries' infrastructures for rail and trucks and other any other movement they can and move it out to safer ports is the process that they'll have to do. That brings up a whole other slew of transportation costs that, that would be added to the grain and whatnot. And you already have some of those bordering countries that have said, we can't take on any more Ukrainian grain imported into our country because it is affecting the domestic prices of our producers here. And so we're just in a very promiscuous standoff across all of these circumstances all surrounding these grain markets. Well, it certainly sounds like there's a lot of moving parts to this. There's not a lot of easy answers either because of all these moving parts and interested parties. So we'll continue to monitor this situation. But it is something that could have an impact on, to your point, grain exports potentially out of the U.S. and as a result of that price. I want to swing back to something you mentioned earlier, which was South America. South America is in the midst of their safrina corn growing season. And was just wondering how that crop is progressing, what you're hearing about how their growing season has come along. When we look to our neighbors in the South, especially in a global economy where they are just right on our tail as far as being able to compete with 
our production like we've never seen before. South America is kind of roaring its head. We'll start with Argentina because I think this is the year that we can kind of be thankful for weather woes because if Argentina were not having the drought that they are having, uh, I think U.S. grain producers would be in a very different situation. But it is what it is, and Argentina is facing severe drought, and we continue to see the conditions for their crops lessen. And I think it's evident in the pace of their harvest as well that there's just not a whole lot to be excited about with their crop. So we continue to see their ratings move lower. There is not a lot of corn that is in good or excellent condition. Um, There's not a lot of soybeans that are in good to excellent condition. And uh, they're really relying on the rest of the world to make up for uh, the deficits that they're having. And their pace of harvest continues to speak to this too, in that it's running at one of their slowest paces in history for them to get a crop out. And I think that speaks to maybe the sentiment of their farmers too, right? If you don't have a really great crop and you're not excited about uh, the price that you'll receive for that, the quality that it is, you're struggling to figure out what to do next. There's just not a lot of motivation to get that crop out of the field. And I think that really speaks to what's going on there in Argentina. The other side of the coin, when you look at Brazil, they've had perfect weather conditions They're expected to have record crops, and that continues to be the expectation. We've seen where the Safrina corn crop, which is their second crop, it makes up about three quarters of their corn production, is also expected to be a record crop. They continue to have really great expectations for high production. I think the caveat that they're facing in particular is that they're going to have such an abundant supply, but they have two really big factors kind of playing against that. The first being their lack of storage capacity. They don't have anywhere to put this really large supply. So they have to offload it as quickly as possible and move corn out to their markets, whether that's uh, using it domestically as quickly as possible, or as we've seen with corn going to China from Brazil, exporting it as quickly as possible. And The Brazilian price is about 50 cents a bushel lower than the U.S. price right now, speaking to that sentiment too. The other thing that is really hindering the viability of some of these Brazilian farmers is that they're having record high input prices, just as we are experiencing in the U.S. For a while, you know, there was a concern that they weren't even going to have fertilizer available to them because of issues with Russia invading Ukraine and how do we move fertilizer out of Russia all the way down to Brazil. Uh, That wasn't as big of a concern going forward. They didn't need to use nearly as much fertilizer as anticipated, but also they were able to secure the supplies that they needed. But now the, the higher input costs come with increased freight rates and the ability to move corn out of the fields to wherever its next destination is that continues to be a higher price because of increased demand for trucks to transport this record crop. And so some interesting dynamics going on there as far as, you know, what a record crop does for your farmer's health and balance sheet, but also uh, what that means for the global market space and in turn our U.S. farmers as they watch a record crop being offloaded as quickly as it is. Sounds like that's a potential watch point as well. You mentioned the possibility that 
similar to soybeans, as we reach the end of when we reach the end of their safrina corn harvest, there could be a bit of a dumping effect on the market due to that lack of of storage capacity and the potential to really pressure prices even here in the U.S. as we try to compete with an already cheaper Brazilian product. As we shift gears back to domestic production, the U.S. planting progress has been pretty incredible, really. We've gotten this crop in at a wonderful clip and according to a lot of producers, you know, really planted in nearly ideal conditions in a lot of places. As we move forward, the market is really going to be focused in on weather and any kind of threat to yield is something that the market could respond to favorably, uh, at least for a time. Have you seen any forecast models or as we've now shifted into El Nino from La Nina, any predictions around the coming forecasts that meteorologists have put out there? Well, as you mentioned, yeah, we have seen corn progress move at a, at a pretty high rate. You know, we're well above the 10-year average. We're not the fastest pace on corn planting as we've been in the last 10 years, but certainly well above average. And we are starting to see corn emerge at a faster rate. I think soybeans, to me, has been kind of the bigger eyebrow raiser that we are seeing a lot of farmers buy into some of these trends that your soybeans can weather a little bit more early weather and they're planting soybeans a lot sooner than than we used to. It used to be, you know, your corn can tolerate a frost, but your soybeans can't. And we're starting to see a, a lot of the advice move away from that sentiment. And, you know, we're already seeing soybeans emerge at the fastest rate in the last 10 years. And so very, very interesting dynamics there. I think soybean yields will be something to watch as it reacts to that pace. Is this, you know, some of that agronomic research coming to fruition that we're going to see this year? And do they maintain on the trend yields that they're at? Something to kind of watch. Uh, We've talked about how soybeans, they need timely rains, but they can weather a little bit more kind of this early stuff. Whereas corn, with it being in the ground, the soil temperatures need to kind of foster that plant and make sure that it's got the right growing conditions Something that we are watching really closely with corn yields is its ability to move away from where trend yield is at. I think the trend yield analysis for corn, I call it the trend yield dilemma, if you will, on corn is that we use a really long historic range in evaluating our corn yield and our corn trend yield. And that kind of skews the value that we put there so early in the season. What I'm talking about is that if you shorten the time period for corn yield and evaluate the trend in just say the last decade post the 2012 drought and really at a pivot point that we've seen where corn yields really took off in those early 2010 years that we started seeing more resilient corn varieties, we really took on just a different kind of corn plant, if we reevaluate the yield trend analysis for those years, we don't even go above 180 bushels per acre. It's closer to what we've seen in years like 2017, 2018, and even 2021, where we're closer to that 178 realm, 178 bushels per acre realm, where 
I think a lot of farmers and rangers tend to find themselves a little bit more realistic. Now that's three to four to five bushels per acre lower than where USDA pegs yields today. And so reevaluating some of our balance sheets based on what could be a more realistic trend yield is something to consider. Now, we're moving into different weather patterns, as you mentioned, and a lot of meteorologists say that the El Nino pattern in the summer is not as influential as it is in the winter. And so it's hard to predict what that weather pattern will do this summer, but preparing for drier conditions, as we've seen certainly through the plains, that they have not recovered from drought and it, it is getting worse through those middle states. You know, does that help bring some of those corn yields down? Does some of this early planting progress influence corn yields? You know, these are all questions that we'll have to monitor. And as we see corn conditions throughout, and you always have things like the unexpected pests and diseases that we tend to to move through our corn conditions as well, that there's a lot of moisture through the next couple of weeks contribute to some of those issues. Time will tell, but but we already need to level our expectations that 181.5 bushels per acre is not somewhere where we're going to be. Shelby, it's been a pleasure having you on today. Always appreciate your in-depth analysis and look forward to having you on again as we walk through what is historically the most volatile time in the grain markets and producers are constantly monitoring not just market activity, but also their own production expectations. If you've enjoyed listening to From the Furrow, please subscribe, hit the like button, or share us with a friend. Thanks to Corey Romero, our producer, and Paige Driscoll for mixing and mastering today's show.